Well, good morning. We are grateful that you are here this morning. We are grateful for the time to be together and to encourage one another with our presence and to share in God's word. Welcome, of course, to Daylight Saving Time. I would ask if you remember to change your clocks, but I hope that you're here. means that you have, and the best part might be that we can all sit and watch the back door for the next few minutes, maybe, and see if anybody comes in really late, and we'll be able to then know they didn't change their clocks. But I don't know if that would be the best use of our time, so we'll just, we'll just continue on. But we're glad that you're here this morning. We all may be uh, a little bit uh, short on sleep or shorter than normal, but we're thankful for a few moments to study together. Um, Seems like we've got a few who are out this morning. It's kind of that time of year, even uh, as Heath announced for us there about canceling the uh, uh, the service at the healthcare center. But uh, as always, we caution you to be be cautious in your in your life and with yourself and family. Be diligent uh, in taking care of yourself, and of course, the things like washing of hands and as best we can to make sure that we're all protected. If you feel sick or running a fever, then by all means, uh, stay home and uh, and take care of yourself. We miss you when you're not here, but we want to do our best to prevent spreading things around even as we we see the sunshine we feel a little bit of warmth we look forward to the the summer months when some of that leaves us but uh, certainly we've got a lot of folks who are sick although we're thankful for the ones who are back with us this morning you know the best I can figure I was kind of figuring up doing a lot of looking uh, over the last couple of days in preparation for the lesson but the best I can figure about 88 percent maybe some somebody might say between 70 and 80 85, 88% or so of the Bible makes up what we call the old law. When we look at the number of words, when we looked at chapters, the way it's broken down for us, about 88% of the Bible would fall under what we would refer to as the old law. That's, of course, the Old Testament. We've been studying that on Wednesday night some, the benefit of going back and looking at those things. But the Old Testament, and even going forward into what we would refer to as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts of the life of Christ. Christ hadn't died yet, so folks are still living under that old law. We call it that, the old law oftentimes, even if people don't understand exactly maybe what we're referring to. There were priests and high priests. There were tabernacles and temples. There were altars and sacrifices. And, and all of these things fall under the old law. But all of it was pointing toward him. It was pointing toward Christ and his coming. Not only those who would speak about it as we go through the Old Testament. And again, we've been talking about that if you've been with us in the auditorium class for a while. We've been looking at those things and the way that they point toward Christ. But not only did people speak about it, prophets of God point toward a day when there was one who was coming. But even that old law, even those sacrifices and, and those altars, even those tabernacles and temples, the priests and the high priests were all pointing toward him. And for a time, this is all God's people have known. Uh, we've discussed this before, whether it be in class or, or whether it be from the pulpit here in a sermon, but, but that's all that God, God's people knew. That was the way that they were to be obedient, was to follow by this old law. But Jesus did. Jesus did come to this earth. Jesus did live and he did die. And so we fast forward to the book of Hebrews, and all that was fine, and it was approved, but there's something better. If you've got your Bible, you can be turning to Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2 and 4, pointing towards the fact that there was something better, or discussing this idea that there is something better. And even on Sunday morning, as the class here in the auditorium on Sunday morning has been discussing better things, or the fact that these things were better we make mention of the fact that this epistle is written to those who would need to be encouraged to don't go back. 
This is what you've known for a time. This is all there was. This was accepted and approved. But, but don't go back to that because there is something better. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse number 10, actually. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them Brethren, keep that in your mind, but go forward to verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his, there's the same thought, brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The thought kind of continues on over in chapter 4 in verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. But wasn't, excuse me, but yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Old Testament was a system, if you will, set up by God, by which he could have communion. We use that word, or community. He could have a presence among his people. It involved sacrifices, it involved blood, it involved high priests who would serve as an intercessor, or a mediator, or a go-between between the people, a sinful people, and a holy God. That was the role of the high priest's under the Old Testament law, the old law. But go forward in the book of Hebrews, in this letter, in the Hebrew writer in chapter 10 and verse number 4, he informs us that while all of that was good and well, the way it was set up, God set it up that way, all of that was good and well, Hebrews 10, 4 reminds us that it was not and is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It's not possible. The writer says you can kill them, you can offer up their blood as sacrifices as required by the law of Moses, the old law. And you can do it till you're blue in the face. You can do it until the end of time, essentially, and it won't do you any good. It won't do you a lick of good in a certain sense. Because the, the bl blood of bulls and goats, it's not possible. They cannot take away sin. And though so many people on this earth, and we read about it, we, we read about it in, on the pages of our New Testament, but though so many people missed it, they missed the boat, as we say, when Jesus came, the one mightier than John, the beloved Son of God, though so many missed it, He did come. He did shed His blood, as Matthew 26 and verse 28 reminds us. He did shed His blood of the new covenant, which was shed for many for the remission of sins. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 14, he did break down the middle wall of separation. Colossians 2 and verse 14, he did wipe out the handwriting of requirements that was against us and he did take it out of the way and nail it to the cross. Now, when Jesus came, lived and died, he didn't completely erase the Old Testament and the old law. I mean that in the sense that, that it wasn't wiped from history. We can still read about it. And in fact, it's a beautiful study. It's a beautiful thing, even as we have been looking at just a little bit on Wednesday nights, 
a beautiful thing to study what was the old law and its requirements and the shadows and the types and the antitypes that are there. It's a beautiful, uh, very beneficial study to look at those things. Jesus didn't come to completely erase it in the sense that we would forget it. That it would just be gone from the earth and no one would remember it. He did take it out of the way. He did nail it to the cross as we sometimes say. But he wasn't trying to erase it. In the sense that he came in a sense to fulfill it. To make a connection if you will. Those things are no longer going to be necessary. But it's that we can look at them and think about his coming. Because we would notice that Jesus is our brother and our high priest. If you were in the auditorium class this morning, I had to constantly get on to Jerry for quit talking about my sermon during his class. He continued to talk about these things, but he was making the wonderful point as we were in that class, as we talked about this passage, that even though it seems a little weird, and you know, I'm very careful, and I think you are too. We're very careful sometimes with our words. We don't want to be irreverent. We don't want to talk about Jesus or God in a flippant way. We don't want to use his name in vain, as we say. And so somebody says, well, Jesus is my brother. That can sound a little irreverent if you're not careful, but it's still true. That's what Hebrews 2 is pointing out there. Hebrews 2 in verse number 10, or excuse me, verse number 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I believe if you've got the English Standard Version in front of you or maybe something else, it will use the phrase brothers. He is our brother in a sense. And so we can use it and talk about it flippantly, and that's not okay, but he is our brother but maybe more importantly, in a sense, for us to understand, and in connection this morning, he is our high priest. There's something that makes him qualified to do that, though. You know, we talk about offices today. We think about the president as we're considering those things or a boss at work. What makes that person qualified? Why should they get that job? Why should they do that? Well, there's something that makes Jesus qualified to be our high priest. Not just qualified, but I would even say supremely qualified. And it's not just that he was the perfect son of God, though he was. But remember from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14 there, he was in all points tempted as we are. As we would say today, he's been there and done that. And sometimes when our mind wanders just a little bit and we contemplate things, we might like to contemplate or think about the fact of what a day in the life of Jesus must have been like. Have you ever considered that before? As you're reading maybe the gospel accounts, we, we begin to think about what it must have been like for him on a day-to-day -day basis. Did he ever sleep? I would assume yes. Did he ever eat? Well, we know that he did. Did he have any private moments? Did he ever get just a moment to himself maybe? To, to just have a second to, to, to clear his mind or to think some thoughts? I, you mothers understand sometimes when the children are constantly on you, you know, I just need a private moment. Did Jesus ever get... One of those, was he ever frustrated with all the people who were following him? And the Apostle John, in John chapter 21 and verse number 25, John gives us one of the most astonishing to me, mind-boggling statements that's recorded in the Bible when John stamps his gospel account closed by saying, and there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. To consider that what we know simply about the life of Jesus, with four different men giving us some type of account of what he went through, we don't even touch the hem of the garment of what all he did. And that's kind of mind-boggling to us. 
But connecting what we read just a moment ago in Hebrews to that statement by the Apostle John, we can know at least a little about the temptation of our Lord, of our high priest, of Jesus Christ and what he went through. And that is because of the recordings, of course, the writings of two of the writers of the New Testament. Actually, in Mark chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13, Mark takes just two simple verses, two very brief verses, and mentions the fact that Jesus, this specific instance of temptation. In Matthew chapter 4 and verses 1 through 17, Matthew gives a much more detailed account of Satan visiting Jesus and tempting him. But because of our young people, and as we've been studying the book of Luke for our 2020 Lads to Leaders Convention, and as we have determined to spend this month looking at the gospel according to Luke to encourage them, this morning we want to focus on Luke's account of the temptation of Jesus. We want to notice some things about the particular account, and we'll make some application. He was tempted as we are, and what did that look like? Well, let's look together. Luke chapter 4 and verses 1 through 13. We set the stage beginning in Luke chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. That's not the first time you read about that, by the way. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse number 9, Moses points out, when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Moses refers back to the book of Exodus when he is on the mountain about to receive those Ten Commandments, and he says, I fasted for 40 days. So it's not the first time we read about that, but Jesus has gone through that. And so we come in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 4, to the first temptation. The devil says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone or these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. A quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse number 3. A few things about these temptations before we make application. Number one, the first temptation. The first temptation questions God's provision and God's care. We begin to realize here that Satan does not actually question if Jesus is the Son of God. He uses those words in that way, but that's not probably the way his tone was. He's not questioning that. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's using that tone that we sometimes use to make a point. Well, if you are, if you are really the Son of God, and he's using that as a point of attack. If you are the Son of God, then you should be able to do this. Questioning God's provision. You've been starving in the desert, he's saying to Jesus. God must not care for you. Act independent of him and take care of yourself. God must be abandoning you, so just do it. And of course, in probably a little bit of weakness, not that, that Jesus uh, couldn't handle it as we see that he did in that sense, but maybe with that hunger setting in, some of us can't go 40 minutes without eating or, you know, there much less 40 days. We think about that or even 40 hours. In that moment of weakness, being hungry, he might have considered for just a second 
that idea of provision and care, that's what the devil is trying to prey upon. That's what he's trying to draw him in with. God must be abandoning you. He must not care for you. So just do it. Just, just cause it to happen. Because I know you can. And so Jesus has to face this thought. Even if it is for just a moment. We move forward to number two there. Moving on to the second beginning in about verse number five. The devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil says, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Jesus answered him, get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. A reference again to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, chapter 10 and verse number 20. Think about for just a moment, this seems a little crazy to us because of the idea that maybe this wasn't true. But the problem with that is, is if it weren't true, then it's not a temptation. You know, someone offers you something, you say, well, that doesn't interest me at all. It's not really a temptation. Just because someone holds alcohol up in front of your face, if you've never drunk it, and it's not something you really even want to begin to try, then it's not a temptation for you. So the devil must have had some type of power here, in a sense, to do this. But in number two, it's a test of the loyalty. It's a test. Here's a shortcut, the devil is saying. Just take it. Again, just do it. Here's the shortcut. Leave behind the rejection and suffering. You know it's coming. You know you're going to have to suffer and die, so just leave that behind. You can be king. Take a shortcut. Avoid the pain. Just worship me. And most of us, if we knew that we could do something one time, just one time we could do something, and we could avoid all the temptation and suffering of this life, all the pain, most of us would say, sign me up. I don't want to go through any more suffering and pain, so sign me up for that and I'll avoid that. Jesus is tempted here. It's a test of loyalty. Will you be true to him or will you worship me? The devil is saying. So Jesus has a decision to make. Again, a temptation, if you will. But number three, moving along, beginning about verse number nine, then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you, there's that phrase again, not exactly the way you might consider it, but if you are the son of God, throw down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. A reference to Psalm 91 in verses 11 and 12. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 16. And of course, if you were to turn to Deuteronomy 6, that's a reference back to Exodus 17 when the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, right? And when they're doing that, they're thirsty, they're hungry, and they tempt God, it says there in Exodus chapter 17. You shall not tempt the Lord your God, Jesus answers. Now the third instance here, the third temptation is an instance of twisted scripture. Now that's not twisted sister for you 80s rockers who are in the, the audience, but twisted scripture, all right? Scripture can be twisted. The devil can do it. The world can do it. The devil seems to, to just be making offers here. But, but in this instance, he actually goes a step further of taking a verse or verses and pushing Jesus to do wrong by using Scripture. 
He quotes the things that Jesus has been quoting in a sense. And says, well, if you're going to do it, here's the reasons why. Because the scripture says that, you know, that you can do it. It would be okay. And so when we think about the way temptations go sometimes, many people will take scripture and they'll twist it. They'll twist it to make it mean what they want it to mean. The world can do it. The devil certainly can do it as well. So what can we learn? As we begin with the words of the Hebrew writer, we can read this account and understand that we have a high priest who was in all points tempted as we are. That's great. But can we gain something more, something else from knowing and understanding this text? Four points and the lesson will be yours. Number one, no one is immune. What can we learn from the fact that Jesus is our high priest who was tempted in all points as we are? Number one, no one is immune. You know, sometimes we feel bad when we struggle with something. When we spend our time wrestling with a sinful situation, we we see other people who seem to have it all figured out and we can kind of look down on ourselves. We feel bad that we're struggling with this. But remember, even Christ was tempted. And not only that, not only was the Son of God, but do you remember verse number 1 of Luke chapter 4 there? It says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only was the Son of God tempted, but He wasn't just totally in this weakness state. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if the Son of God, the only Son of God, filled with the Holy Spirit can be tempted, then I think we can be tempted too, and no one is immune from it. The devil began all the way in the Garden of Eden, and he didn't stop with the Son of God. And he's not going to stop with me and you either. Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Brethren, a Christian writing to Christians, we're going to be tempted, and not only that, we're going to be overtaken from time to time, and we need to do our best to help one another out, and while we do that, not be tempted ourselves. We will be tempted. It is not a sign of weakness. And on the other hand, Paul continues in that passage there in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 3, don't think you're above it. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul says not only should you not consider that you're, you're too weak, but you really shouldn't consider that you're too strong for it either. No one is immune. When we feel the weight of the world, when we feel the weight of a sinful situation, when we feel the weight of temptation, the pressure in our lives, the constant pushing from our friends and our family members sometimes and those that we love, when we feel that constant pushing on our lives of the problem of sin, remember that even Jesus, the Son of God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was subject to these moments. No one is immune from temptation And I think we can take encouragement from that. Number two, temptations take all forms. Temptations take all forms. They're all states, if you will. Physical, mental, spiritual, etc. When we think about it, think about what we've already discussed here. The devil uh, attempts to, to sway Jesus with hunger. He attempts to sway the Son of God with hunger. He attempts to sway Jesus with pride. If you are the Son of God... I know you can do these things, then you should do it. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. We are tempted in all states. We can look at this account of Jesus going through these things and realize that it affects us too. The devil would do all he can to draw us away from God. He's going to take all of those avenues, every state that we can be in. Let me ask you this. What do you think he wouldn't use? Work? You think he'd leave work alone, some, some temptation that might come about there? Do you think he'd leave the idea of drinking or alcohol alone? It wouldn't tempt you with that. Do you think he wouldn't take family and turn it against you? And tempt you with your family members to do something or even not do something that you know that you should do? Not only does temptation take all forms in the sense of maybe all states, but at all times of our lives as well. Not just in the Garden of Eden, as we said, but even here in the desert, the good and the bad. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think you are above it for one moment. Because when you do, when you think you've got it figured out, when you can make it maybe two or three days without some type of serious temptation, that's when you're going to fall. We can't think that we have any particular area figured out. Temptation will take all forms, all states, but certainly all points of our life as well. You think that once you're young, it's tough, and when you get older, it'll be easy? No. The temptations might change. They might be a little different, but they're still going to be there. They take all forms in our life, and we can see that even here in Luke chapter 4. Number three, temptations often reveal our lack of loyalty to God and our trust in God. Will we be loyal to God? Will we be loyal to God if we lose our material things? Will we be loyal to God if we lose our health? How about this? If we lose our loved ones. Those dealing with that issue this very week, even near and dear to us, even close in proximity to us, we've seen those dealing with this idea of loss. Will we be loyal to God when those temptations come? Which leads me to say, consider this. When it comes to temptation, I'm afraid that oftentimes we make these big categories as we do with things sometimes. And we say, well, it's just about sexual temptation. Well, temptation is just about alcohol or drinking or something like that. Or, or fill in the blank. We, we make temptation about these big things. We often associate temptation with fleshly things. But I think if we limit our temptations to only that type of thought, then we are sorely mistaken. We are selling the issue way short and we will set ourselves up for failure. Temptation is the option to leave God and go against him. That's what temptation essentially is. It might involve sexuality. It might involve alcohol. It could involve anything. Simply turning your back on him for someone else. That's what temptation would be. It might be those fleshly things, but it might also just be the chance to follow after ourselves. To leave God behind to do what we want to do. In Romans chapter 6 and verse number 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey... You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Paul says that if we are not slaves to God, then we are slaves to sin. That's what the temptation is. Fight the temptation. Be faithful, loyal to him. The most often used verse when it comes to temptation is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not 
allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He is faithful. And what he's longing for us to do is to set the temptation aside and to be loyal and faithful to him because our temptations are questioning that. They're causing us to consider whether or not we will be loyal and faithful when we go through the hard times, when we lose our earthly things. So we must realize that temptations reveal our lack of loyalty and trust. As we already stated, that's what the devil was after with Jesus. Will it be that way for us? Well, it absolutely is. And what will we do? And then fourth and finally this morning, our answer is the word of God. What can we learn when we read Luke chapter 4? Our answer is the word of God. Did you realize this? Did you realize the first words, the first words that are recorded for us of Jesus's earthly ministry? I don't know if you're still there in Luke chapter 4, but in verse number 23 of Luke 3, excuse me, Luke 3, 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. And if you're looking at your Bible, there's no more red letters, if you've got red letters, until you come to chapter 4. And what are the first words of Jesus' earthly ministry? It is written. The first words of Jesus' earthly ministry are pointing back to the word of God. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119 and verse 11. In Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God, it's the one offensive piece. The one weapon that, we can, that can be used. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Again, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Answer this. How else do you think you're going to get through all that? What else are you going to turn? What else can you turn to to help you? What else are you going to go to to help you get through this struggle we call life? huh? Do you think it's Dr. Phil? Do you think it's Oprah? Do you think it's somebody that you can turn to and ask for help? It's got to be the Word of God. In every place that we turn, have you tried to do it on your own? Have you tried that lately? It's got to be the Word of God. Let me ask you this. Can you answer the things that people say with the Scripture? Have you ever thought about doing that? Now, that's in a serious way. I mean, like in a very serious way, baptism. Someone wants to talk about baptism. Can you quote Mark 16, 15 and 16? What about even in a funny way? You know, we do that in our house sometimes. You know, some of the, one of the kids does something. Some of the, somebody offers me the extra brownie, and what do you say? Get behind me, Satan, right? You know, you kind of do it in a funny way sometimes. Sometimes with the kids. You remember when, when Jesus has washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, that very serious moment, and, and then he offers Judas the bread, and the devil enters Jesus, and Jesus looks at Judas and uses a phrase that when I'm trying to get my kids motivated, I use a lot. What thou doest, do it quickly, right? Get downstairs and clean up your room. What thou doest, do it quickly. You know, we joke about that sometimes. Campbell says, well, I want this. No, I want that. I want this. I want that. Freddie always says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, right? James chapter 1. We quote scripture sometimes to be funny in our life. But can you think of scripture that quickly when it comes to a moment like that? What about when someone's dealing with something serious? A sexual temptation. What about when you turn the television on or go to the movies and there's all those things that you know you shouldn't be watching? Do you think whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely? Can you quote scripture in a moment when it comes to facing a particular temptation? Folks, I don't know any other way to say it. The word of God is the answer. 
The more we meditate on it, the more we hide it in our heart, the more that we think on these things, the better equipped that we are to handle the temptations of life. Think about it one more way. You know, people often say, would you do it? They say, would you succumb to the temptation if Jesus were standing right here? You ever heard that? Would you do it if Jesus were standing here, if God were standing by your side? Think about it this way. Would you do it if the Bible was in your hand? If you're carrying it under your arm constantly, just as if God is by your side or Jesus is standing there, would you do it then? It should be by your side. If it's not physically by your side, it's in your mind. It's on your lips. Have you tried that lately? God is with you if you have his word in your life, on your lips, in your heart. And that is the answer. Christ is our high priest because he can sympathize. He understands. He knows. He's looked the devil in the face and he said not today i'm not going to succumb today and the rest of the story by the way that you read there in luke chapter 4 when the devil had ended those temptations he departed from him until an opportune time it wasn't over for him it's not over for us it's not over for us today it won't be over for us tomorrow as long as we have life and breath we will be tempted to leave god you've come this far in your life and we can be thankful for that but it's not over not by a long shot So how will you handle temptation? The first most important step for a person living today is to get in Christ. That's where all spiritual blessings are found. And by the way, I would submit to you that one of the great spiritual blessings besides salvation is the help in times of temptation. Do you want that help? You've got to be in Christ. You can hear the word this morning, believe the word of God, repent of your sins, confess Jesus as Christ and do those things and you're ready to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The Lord will then add you to his church and you can begin to live a faithful life. You can begin to enjoy all the rights and privileges associated with being a child of God, including turning to him in times of temptation. Maybe you've done that, but today as you're here, as a Christian, you realize your life is not right with God. Maybe it is a sin separating you from him. Maybe it's a temptation. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's simply something that you're struggling with. God calls you home. And this body of Christ would love to pray with you and for you. Jesus is our high priest who understands. And he is calling you home. Even now as we stand together and as we sing.